Welcome to episode 282 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. This week, we'll be discussing some of the many, many, many pitfalls of predicting artificial intelligence and obviously, we're guilty of some of that, but we're, we're going to tackle these rules of thumb, which were put forth, uh, I think, last year in MIT's technology review by Rodney Brooks, who, if you don't know the name, you should. He's the founder of Rethink Robotics. I believe he's also a founder of iRobot and was at MIT. The name of the article was The Seven Deadly Sins of AI Predictions. And so we're going to dig into some of these rules of thumb that Mr. Brooks puts forth. So first, I don't think we need to uh, go too far to see the hysteria of it all, right? It's fun, and it probably gets a lot of clicks. If you can talk about how a particular subsection of the economy is going to be completely wiped out by automation, whether it's robotic or AI or some combination. Usually, I, I think the um, around any of these predictions, if you dig a little deeper, you can reveal some of the lazy thinking. Some of the questions probably worth asking are, you know, hey, what's automated already? And how easy is it to automate? And how many jobs are there? And how likely is this to happen? But Rodney Brooks gives us some rules of thumb, which I think are are very useful. So let's get started. I, and and we're, we're not going to take these in any particular order. Uh, I think just sort of the generally interesting ones, we'll start with some of them. So I found this uh, pretty fascinating, and we've talked about this before, but that the idea that purpose-built AI is just not adaptable. So anytime you're making a prediction that's based on a very specific purpose-built AI, and you know it's sort of uh, being a pointer to future change, whether that's apocalyptic or utopic or somewhere in between. And a perfect example of this is, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about AI and poker, AI and Go, AI and chess. And, you know, it's this idea that here are these amazing games that humans invented, and now we're not even the best at them anymore. We've been bested by machines. Uh-oh, you know, where is this going? Dirk, this is a great rule of thumb, I think, and sort of leads to the you know, the sort of the massive difference between narrow AI and the sort of more more general AI, which people sort of conflate. Do you want to tackle that one a little bit? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this a lot on the show, of course. I mean, at, the, at the most simple level, I mean, narrow AI, all AI that is currently deployed that we're seeing that we're able to talk about as a real thing is narrow AI. It's AI that is purpose-built to do a specific thing. Um, you know, general AI, which the media is more fond of talking about, is, uh, you know, the, the theoretical AI that is able to do many things, you know, getting into to the point of being superhuman and, and being able to eclipse the things that we do. Um, AI is narrow and is going to be narrow for a while. So any predictions that are beyond narrow AI, you can really throw out right away. Uh, we will move beyond narrow, but it's more likely to be decades than years. So just 
we can all chill a little bit. Right. And I think part of that is it, it's narrow is not adaptable. So it's not like the AlphaGo or, you know, the chess playing AI is going to figure out how to, you know, I don't know, make a, a menu for your dinner or help you with your math homework or, or whatever it is. They're not, they're not adaptable beyond the purpose they were built for. And in fact, if you went and changed one small aspect of, you know, the rules of play, right? So you could have, um, like when you play Monopoly, right? There are lots of Monopoly fanatics who change the rules just slightly just because yeah. it's fun. They yeah. hack the game. So if you were an AI playing Monopoly and someone went in and started changing all the rules, the AI wouldn't be able to do anything anymore because the rule set that it learned and that it was right. trained on is now useless. Yeah, no, that, that's all true. You know, and the the other thing to think about, even though, yes, with those narrow AIs, they're only able to do one thing, you do have people thinking in terms of frameworks as well. So when we had Noam Braun on, you know, one of the co-creators of Labratus, the AI that beat poker professionals, you know, he made a point of saying multiple times, we didn't we didn't make this to beat poker. We made this to be a particular engine that could be redeployed to do other things. And he talked about things in the financial sector. He talked about things in the security sector. Uh, now, in order to achieve those ends, they will need to start over again from the standpoint of the AI's learning. However, the basic structure of the AI, the programming of the AI, I don't know to what degree they're just learning from what they've done. They're leveraging assets from what they've done. They're taking whole cloth, the whole engine, and just reteaching it. I, he, he didn't go into those details, and I can't speak to that. But there is now this thoughtfulness around we want to make something that solves and addresses particular problems. Each instantiation that we have will need to be specific to one problem, but in working on the one, we can adjacently easily work on the next and work on the next. And that's where you start to get some really interesting things happening, but it remains in the territory of narrow AI, again, where each one is, is just doing, is doing kerchunking at that one thing. It's, it's a whole lot of hammers, John. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Another one of these rules of thumb uh, from the article that particularly interested me, just because we've sort of seen some of its effects at our work uh, at the studio around AI and you know non-AI software, frankly, was just talking about the speed of deployment of technologies and their capital costs. Mm -hmm. So you know, a good sort of way to look at this is through uh, the digitization of, of healthcare and healthcare records. It's sort of a good example of how um, much time, effort, and money uh, is required to do this digital transformation. And you can sort of see from the example I'm about to give, you know, how this might apply to AI software and just sort of the, the needs in all three of those areas that are going to be you know, far off in the future, we're, we're going to need lots of money, lots of time. So, for example, EHRs got a ton of money, you know, sort of injected into that industry by the federal government uh, because they wanted to digitize health records and um, reap all of the benefits of having a digitized system. Now, we won't get into the fact that, you know, a lot of this deployment wasn't, you know, we haven't realized the success of it yet, right? Is but it an epic fail, John? It, I, I don't know if it's an epic fail, but there there are lots of of 
smaller failures that might add up to an epic fail. I was using the word epic in a couple of different I know, ways. I know, I okay, know you were. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, so, so let's look at that. You know, over the past decade, we've been deploying these electronic health records, and we're moving from an analog system, which is largely paper-based and doing, you know, faxing of records, right, to a digital one. So you have to deploy all of these massive enterprise systems at hospitals. You have to retrain people. In fact, now that people are not using paper all the time, you sort of have to rethink the way they're interacting with patients because now doctors are looking at their screens all the time and not looking at the patients. And together with all those things, you know, we're sort of finally gotten the electronic health records uh, sort of up and running, and people don't really know how to use them yet. There are no open standards, so people can't share data with each other. Patients don't own their data. Patients can't even really transfer their data from one hospital to another provider to another hospital. There are all sorts of just sort of practical problems with the deployment of this technology. And this is a fairly unremarkable technology. Like, yeah. let's face it, digitizing the health record it doesn't seem like this would need to be magical. Like that, no, this it's, it's is, not a killer death robot level of problem. No, no, it, it's not. And so the fact that we can almost sort of kind of deploy that thing over 10 years, but not super successfully, you know, just imagine trying to do your next level of digital transformation and add AI into all your workflows across hospitals. Like, I can't imagine how many years that would take once the technology exists, yeah. right? Yeah. So first you have to develop the technology and then you have to deploy it. And never mind the fact that a lot of people were really sort of happy just faxing things and filing away their papers just as they always were. If you've got a system that works and you've got sort of incremental improvement from whatever the software is going to be, it's also just going to take time yeah. uh, to for that to be absorbed. Yeah. So for many reasons, deployment is like the unforeseen uh, monster in the closet for any technology. It's like, okay, great, this stuff works. It may even work in the small prototype or... Um, a rollout, but once you start talking about enterprise grade uh, rollouts of things, the uh, the stakes get a lot higher and the timelines get a lot longer, for sure. That's really true, and part of that is existing infrastructure, which is an issue in that context, but also beyond it. You know, if you're thinking about making predictions and where technology can go. Remember that we have a lot of stuff that people can't afford to replace, right? So if we would um, if we could magically make vanish all roads and all cars, you can bet automobiles would not be the transportation solution of today or the future. It would be something completely different. However, in a world where the roads already exist and people have tens of thousands of dollars invested in their cars and don't have a lot of extra money to, to spend on new transportation conveyances, Cars are going to be the center for, for a really long time. In the home, you know, there's lots of interesting concepts around what a house of the future could look like. You know, our the health room that we innovated at GoInvo is an example of that. But, you know, these houses are made of certain materials. They are physical, expensive spaces. Changing those physical materials and completely metamorphosizing, <laughs> I think is the right word, um, the environment, it's just beyond the bounds of what 80, 90% of people can pay for. And so, you know, the more interesting and exciting and, say, magical solutions around smart homes, 
that ain't going to happen because of existing infrastructure, if absolutely nothing else. So as you're thinking about your own predictions and your own trying to sort out what does the future look like, think about infrastructure. Because if you're dealing with something that has existing infrastructure, I mean, that's that's a huge boulder in the way of exciting new ideas, uh, you know, becoming becoming reality. Yeah, I, I think that's correct. Um, one point that uh, Mr. Brooks made in his uh, his article that I found interesting and doesn't really um, it's not something I think about very often, but uh, he, he was just pointing out that exponential thinking can get us in trouble, right? So we have this. Um, in our heads, we have this idea that exponential growth around technology, in particular, you know, sort of Moore's law has has spoiled us in a lot of ways because, you know, now I can get a computer that is, you know, a hundred times more powerful than, you know, whatever it was I was using uh, as a kid in the in the late eighties, right, yeah. in, in my pocket, right, versus this. Uh, giant behemoth that was sitting on my on my father's desk, and so we've we've sort of accepted that as an article of faith, right? So now everything will get smaller, everything will get faster, and that will just go on forever, right? Um, and okay, so so that's not you know necessarily true. Like these uh, advances that we're making, whether it's in genomics or uh, you know or, around. Uh, chips and computers, there are physical and other limits to them that will, you know, economic limits, for instance, you know, at a certain point, it doesn't make any sense to keep on making things smaller if people just don't need the power anymore for, you know, whatever it is they're doing. I probably don't actually need all the power that's in my MacBook Pro right now. I could probably survive with something like somewhere in between what I had in college and what I have now mm -hmm. probably would have been fine. Yeah. But there are economic limits. And then there are like the actual physical limit of how small you can make something, right? Yeah. And so these will come into play in different ways. But it's worth considering that this is not it's not really exponential, or at least it's not going to be exponential forever in many of these cases. And, you know, that's not to say that there won't be some interesting quantum computing discovery that, uh, you know, who knows, may, may develop some, some crazy, uh, crazy fast computing that, that we can't even imagine yet. Yeah. But uh, barring that and, and sort of considering the laws that we sort of understand now, there, there are sort of these upper limits that you, you never hear about limitations when uh, miraculous predictions are, are made at, at all, frankly. That's true. You know, I, I think when, when many of us think about the future, we're not thinking about it in terms of time frames, right? It's pundits who are like, in 10 years, this will happen. In 20 years, that will happen. Um, but, you know, the article pointed out that overestimating and underestimating the, the time frame of things happening is a big mistake that people make. And is one that I think is valuable for all of us to keep in mind as well. Like we, I, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I mean, over the years, there's been a lot of things that I've seen coming and predicted correctly. I, I tend to have a skill for that, but I have almost universally been wildly off in terms of the specific time frame when I've put a specific time frame on it. Um, it's tough to get that right unless it's really close. And you can say, oh, you know, in six months next year, because it's like it's all kind of imminent. It's all kind of coming to a head. Um, and, and so, you know, as we're thinking about just personally how to manage our, you know, prognostications for the trajectory of the future, it's to be mindful of that if you have specific time horizons are probably wrong. Like to try and 
figure out what's happening in 10 years or whatever that chalk line is, is going to be a failed exercise in terms of the conclusions you come to. So think less about timeframes and think more about possibilities and more generally speaking, you know, what, what is going to happen? Timeframes are just, they're, they're going to prove inaccurate and are, are the wrong things to focus on. Yeah. That's the brutality of, um, of, of timeframes, which, uh, if you're given to any kind of estimation, whether it's part of your job or just part of your, part of your life. Um, I mean, the rule of thumb that, that I use sometimes is, okay, I know this much, right? So I'm just going to double it because <laughs> I figure I know maybe 50% of what's going on in, in, in this very specific to estimating, right? Yeah. Like how long is this going to take me? Oh, uh, I think it's going to take a half an hour, just better make it an hour. Or I think this project's going to take 12 weeks, you know, better, better make it double that. And you're likely closer because you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, Um, that's right. I mean, and to, you know, build on that point a little bit, um, a lot of the technologies that we are beginning to understand now, um, we have a specific purpose in mind for those technologies. Um, And oftentimes those purposes are vastly different from how the technology actually gets used. And so technology that is designed for one thing inevitably ends up, you know, in another industry being used for for something uh, that its inventors could never have imagined. Um, so, So when we're making predictions about AI, they're based on our understanding at the moment with all the biases around the industries that we have knowledge of. And they very well could end up, you know, in completely separate areas doing something that, that we never imagined. Um, and so the example from the article that I love is how GPS was basically for targeting uh, munitions, right, for dropping bombs. And, and now we're using it for tracking our runs, right, <laughs> like down to, you know, the the foot, basically, where, you know, I'm running around the park. Among other things, right? I mean, GPS is used in incredibly diverse ways. Sure, sure, yeah, to help us get from place to place to, you know, Lord knows uh, uh, what else it's used for. So um, for the last rule of thumb that we'll touch on today, and uh, I think this is a fun one, um, obviously we haven't hit them all in in our episodes, so we encourage you to go check out the original article, uh, and we'll link to that from the podcast. But the last one that I want to touch on is this idea of Hollywood and movie scenarios where we have a story in mind around a particular usage of AI and sort of accept that usage because it's convenient for the myth or the story that's being told to us on the screen. And and so there isn't a lot of um, discernment because we're being entertained, but at the same time, um, you know, it's sort of laying some of the groundwork for our thinking around AI. And of course, we've all seen the the Terminator films where the artificial general intelligence Skynet sort of takes over things and destroys humanity. And so all of the assumptions that lead up to this very interesting dystopian future, all of these assumptions that make this story feel so exciting, you know, you, you accept as part of the fantasy, but once you exit the movie, these ideas remain with you and shape the way you think about AI, you know, whether or not you're conscious of it, you know, in, in a day-to-day way. Yeah. So uh, 
to your point, you know, the silliness of the killer death robots. I mean, where did we get the killer death robots idea in the first place? I suspect that for as a kid growing up in the 80s, oh, I love the Terminator so much. I don't know if that was the 80s or early 90s. Feels 80s. like 80s. Terminate, first Terminator was 80s. Yeah. And it's probably infected my thinking, uh, thanks to James Cameron, right? <laughs> or whoever wrote the original story, which may have been James Cameron. And that probably even goes back to the 30s. That's when sort of science fiction, I think, was first kind of getting started. That's probably not true. But science fiction, as we think about it today with spaceships and all of that stuff, a lot of that was germinating then. Probably the killer death robots idea began then. Or around them. Right. So something to keep in mind for ourselves and for anybody making AI predictions that the Hollywood version of things is uh, probably not the greatest starting point. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with all the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to the digitallife.com. That's just one L in the digital life and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everyone. So it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you'd like to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And, of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo, a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging technologies which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at D Niemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 282 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.